0: Mm.
1: We're in your hands,
0: Thank you very much. close this door now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So um, let's get the helpful adverts slash uh, shameless shelf promotion out of the way first. Uh, if you haven't got one of these business cards, particularly if you're uh, new today, I... I uh, Partly because I was doing this mission in Trondheim, I I thought I would leave some sort of giant business cards behind me in my wake uh, with uh, recommendations for websites and podcasts and reading and information about my uh, website and so on. And through my website, uh, you will get access to my my podcast, my YouTube channel and so on. Uh, And that is useful because on my YouTube channel, uh, not only do I have some of my own videos, but I curate a lot of YouTube playlists. Uh, You have this function on YouTube where you can create a list that you can give an address. And so I have uh, loads and loads of YouTube playlists on different apologetic topics, including, you'll find there, a playlist on biblical archaeology. So that's the place to go. If you want to see video of a lot of the things that we'll be looking at uh, together in our our time together, you can go there. And on my website, you'll find recordings of other talks on uh, similar themes and topics that I've done before information about my uh, present and forthcoming books, uh, etc. On, on here. So if you haven't got one of these or you want to take one uh, to uh, leave a few at the back of your church or whatever, do uh, pick up some of those. Grand, so archaeological evidence for the Gospels uh, and uh, also uh, act, probably Acts, we'll delve into a little And prophecy, and I'm going to sort of hive those off into the two different sessions. Uh, And in the second session, we'll look at both Messianic prophecy and at Jesus as a prophet. One of the prophecies about the Messiah is that the Messiah would be a prophet. Uh, And so there's a a, a link and an overlap between those. But in this session, I'm basically going to take a look at uh, archaeology in the New Testament, just a sampling of the material that's out there, it's one of those fascinating uh, areas where every time I'm going to do a new talk on this I have to go back to the websites uh, that report these things to the magazines and so on because they're always digging up new and interesting things and indeed they dug up something so interesting this last month was uh, published to find of something very interesting in relation to the Old Testament so I've managed to find a way to slip that in even though I'm talking about New Testament, you'll see you later. It's very important at the outset to remember that we have a very limited access to the past. And the further uh, ago that past is, generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, the more limited our access becomes. Uh, Illustration of this, um, only 35 out of 142 books of Roman history written by the Roman historian Livy, have survived. Uh, They've survived in about 20 manuscripts, the oldest of which dates from the 4th century. He was writing uh, in uh, the overlap of BC-AD. And only 35 out of 142 books of history history have survived. Similarly, uh, for Tacitus, another... Roman historian, four and a half of his 14 books of Roman history have survived in two manuscripts dating to the 9th and the 11th century. And that's the kind of materials that classical historians, uh, uh, historians of the ancient world and so on, are well used to working with. Uh, They realise that uh, ancient historians have their own biases. Uh, These are Roman historians they're probably going to be in favor of Rome. <laughs> when they report things, they have a bias. Uh, they will probably mention supernatural events. Uh, so the, you know, the emperor is reported to have healed so and so by stretching out his hand, and lo, he was healed of his palsy or whatever. Um, but none of that gets in the way of historians thinking we can use that kind of material to reconstruct with varying degrees of certainty uh, ancient history, uh, particularly if we have a number of different reports, we can compare them, uh, so you, had, uh, you can compare those Roman histories with the uh, Jewish historian Josephus, although he kind of defected to Rome, so he ends up writing sort of Jewish history from a pro-Roman uh, viewpoint, and so on. Uh, that's just to talk about sort of literary evidence And of course, literary evidence is one of the things that you uh, basically uh, often dig up. And there's an overlap, uh, even when you're not talking about things on manuscripts. Sometimes, as you'll see, we dig up uh, a mosaic that has a mosaic inscription on it. Or a piece of pottery uh, that has someone's name on it. Or uh, a seal impression uh, that has someone's uh, name on it. So you get written materials in uh, archaeological finds as well. So it's a bit of an artificial distinction uh, between sort of literary and archaeological. Um, It's all getting access to the past through the old stuff that has survived since then. The uh, atheist writer Victor Stenger, I like quoting atheists when I agree with them because they're not wrong about everything. Atheist Victor Stenger says, an absence of evidence is evidence of absence when the evidence should be there and it's not. So often what you'll find is, say, German 19th century uh, liberal theology of the sort of higher criticism sort would say things like, ooh, we haven't dug up evidence of the existence of the pool of Bethesda mentioned in John's Gospel. Uh, we, don't, we don't know about that from archaeology. And oh, it is very suspicious, isn't it, that, that John specifically mentions there are five porticos at the pool of Bethesda for ritual washing. That's clearly metaphorical. John's really talking about the five books of the Pentateuch being really important. He's, he's communicating something uh, through a story that's not really historical, and we know this because, well, we haven't dug it up, which is all well and good until you dig the thing up, <laughs> and you find that it has five porticos, and it's exactly where John said it was, and so on. And it's very dangerous to make uh, arguments from silence, arguments from there's a lack of evidence for something, some claim uh, in a text, biblical or otherwise. Therefore, that lack of independent corroboration casts doubt on the testimony from the text. Um, That's a bad way of going about things and has been shown time and time again, particularly in the biblical instances, uh, to lead you astray. Um, So an absence of evidence is evidence of absence only when the evidence should be there and it's not. If you would expect the evidence for something to have existed, And you would have expected that evidence to have survived until now. (laughs) And you would have expected that we'd have found it by now if it had survived. And there were all sorts of reasons why we might not have found it. People people tend to do very awkward uh, things like living in cities on top of archaeological things that you would want to dig up. And they object because they live there. (laughs) And they don't want to be turfed out of their homes so that you can go poking around in the soil underneath their kitchen or whatever. Um, So there's a lot of stuff out there to be found. Um, Some of it is very awkward to get at. Some of it simply takes time to get at. And we live in an age of um, uninformed, very uninformed claims about Jesus spread by new atheists and other internet uh, atheists and so on. And uh, just a few examples of the kind of thing that you will find as sort of widespread ideas floating around our culture, which is uh, nice to uh, undermine simply by pointing to archaeological, because that's scientific, evidence. So uh, those who say uh, the important thing is scientific evidence, and the problem with religion is you don't have scientific evidence for things, and uh, that shows that Jesus probably didn't exist, and that the Gospels are basically works of fic- <laughs> fiction on a par with the Da Vinci Code, and that the idea uh, that Jesus was divine in any sense was basically an innovation decided upon in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea. And these kind of ideas floated around, and all of them uh, are, are disprovable, by pointing at archaeology, um, without having to go to, you know, what well, the Bible says in, in any sense. So this session I'm going to look at uh, historical places revealed by archaeology, uh, historical people, and historical culture, particularly in terms of places of from whole cities to individual buildings that are of interest, people, um, general and specific names of people, titles of people, ranks that people held, um, relationships between people, sometimes even you can reveal from archaeology, and culture in terms of uh, Christian beliefs. And then later on in the other session we'll look at historical events in in terms of fulfilled prophecy and and where archaeology has some useful things to say about that. If there's one sort of overall general argument to take away from these sessions, it's it's this one laid out here with a nice analogy uh, by the Christian philosopher Lydia McGrew in her um, book Hidden in Plain View, which is a very uh, interesting book about the New Testament uh, evidence. Uh, And she says if if you sample a loaf of bread on both ends and at several points in the middle and you find that it's good, it would be curvailing. it would be being far too sceptical uh, to say that, well, perhaps just the parts you haven't tasted happen to be the mouldy ones. Basically, you ta- if you've got enough samples of something, you, c- you begin to make an inference from that sample, and if that sample shows that uh, what you're looking at is good, is reliable, uh, then you, you, you build up an inference to the whole thing being reliable. That is, insofar as we can check independently what the New Testament writers say about things, if when we can check them independently with archaeology, it turns out that they are historically accurate, then that should build up our confidence that they are interested in, in history, they are able to accurately report history, and that they tend, at least, they tend to do so. And we should probably trust them when they st- even when they say things that we can't independently verify through archaeology. They've been proven to be a trustworthy witness, as it were, and then we, we start trusting them more, even in things that we can't check them out through other sources. So let's begin with uh, historical places. Bethlehem. Right, back to the beginnings of the Gospel stories, of course. Jesus born in Bethlehem, little town of Bethlehem. Now, again, some sceptics of the Bible had said that there wasn't uh, really uh, any evidence that Bethlehem existed uh, at the time of Jesus. Uh, it, of course it exists, you know, it exists now, it existed later on in history, but there wasn't good evidence that it existed earlier on in history. Well, in uh, 2012, Israeli archaeologist Eli Shukron uh, uh, brought to notice this little seal impression. This is a rather large picture of something. It's about the the size of my thumb. And these little seal impressions are often very fascinating finds. Um, They're the kind of thing uh, where, you know... um, in olden days, people would write a letter and then, you know, drip wax onto the, the letter and, and use their ring to make, you know, it's sent from this important person. Or in this case, it was uh, marking uh, 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 goods being sent uh, from Bethlehem to uh, Jerusalem. And it's a sort of, you know, this, this package contains, this package made in, in Bethlehem, that kind of, kind of thing. And let's on a quote from him here. He says, here we can read the word Bethlehem in a clear Hebrew inscription from the first temple period. You know, you have the first temple, Solomon's temple, and then the second temple, the temple that Herod the, the Great uh, at least improved upon. But this is from the first temple period on a bulla, one of these seal impressions found in Israel that arrived from Bethlehem to Jerusalem uh, maybe to pay some tax on the on the goods that were being uh, imported, as it were. This is the Bethlehem next to Jerusalem referred to uh, in the Bible. So uh, archaeological evidence that uh, Bethlehem existed as a conurbation as far back as the first temple period. So now what you'd have to argue is that yes, Bethlehem did exist, and then. Uh, you know, went out of existence for a while, they must have abandoned it during Jesus' day, and then later on, after Jesus' day, uh, repopulated it. Uh, That becomes much harder to sustain the idea that there wasn't a Bethlehem at the time of Jesus, if you can show that it existed before his time, as well as after. um, The simplest thing to think is that it continued existing (laughs) in between, uh, and that the uh, the Bible is uh, perfectly uh, possible, at least, that someone like Jesus was born there. Um, here's a little uh, uh, video. I had not managed to get the, the big speakers working, so I've hooked up my little speaker, but I think it'll do the room. A uh, little video uh, about the, the find.
1: Israeli archaeologists have discovered the first physical evidence supporting Old Testament accounts of Bethlehem's existence centuries before the town became revered as the birthplace of Jesus. The proof came in a clay seal on earth near the walls of the old city of Jerusalem and imprinted with three lines of ancient Hebrew script that include the word Bethlehem. Eli Shukran, who directed the excavation on behalf of the Israel Antiquities Authority, said the seal apparently had been placed on a tax shipment of silver or agricultural produce sent from Bethlehem to the king of Judah in nearby Jerusalem in the 8th or 7th century BC.
0: Yeah, interesting stuff. So, very small finds. It's very easy to overlook these things. Uh, And we'll find later that there's been a... Israeli archaeologists digging near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, And they dug up, uh, uh, you know, you sort of dig up the earth and you store it. And then you have to get people to sift through it. Because these it's the same color as the soil around it and so on. You have to very carefully sift through it. And sometimes they say things like, oh, well, we we dug this up in 2009, but we only noticed it last year (laughs) as we were going through the finds. Nazareth again, um, there had been some archaeological finds around Nazareth, wine presses, uh, some tombs thought to be outside of the town and so on, but you would still find uh, sceptical websites dedicated to proving that Nazareth didn't exist. And the Bible must be wrong, because it says you know, Jesus from, of Nazareth. There was no Nazareth. Well, in 2010, uh, the archaeologists dug up several first-century homes... Uh, in uh, Nazareth. The excavation director, Yardina Alexander, says the discovery is of the utmost importance since it reveals for the very first time a house from the Jewish village of Nazareth and thereby sheds light on the way of life at the time of Jesus. The building that we found is small and modest and is most likely typical of the dwellings in Nazareth in that period. Uh, And she even adds, this may well have been a place that Jesus and his contemporaries were familiar with. Um, That's a logical suggestion. So it's not like, we've dug up the house of Jesus. Um, You'd need more evidence to to show that. Uh, But we have dug up houses in Nazareth from the time period of Jesus, disproving sceptical claims that the Bible is wrong about the existence of such a place. Because argument from silence, although the Bible mentions it, we don't have independent evidence from archaeology of the existence of such a thing. Uh, these arguments from silence, time and time again, get undermined. Uh, as with most archaeology, if you've ever watched the the, the BBC program Time Team, whatever, most archaeology seems to consist of digging up a series of small walls. That's uh, most of it. <laughs> Yeah, Capernaum, of course, is mentioned a lot uh, in the New Testament. It was used as a base of operation by Jesus and disciples. And there is a whole, you can go and visit the whole uh, village of Capernaum. It's preserved today as an archaeological uh, tourist attraction. Uh, of course, uh, people build on things over time. They build on top of uh, what was there before and so on. They reuse materials from old buildings to make new buildings and so on. Uh, this is the 5th uh, the century uh, synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, but it seems to have been built directly onto the foundations, these black basalt <coughs> foundations here of the 1st century synagogue and they would have re- they just rebuilt on the same site so the white stone is from the 5th century but the foundations of that synagogue seem to indicate that that was from a different building period, that's from the 1st century and they just built uh, uh, rebuilt the synagogue on the same foundations um, so lots of references to Capernaum uh, the synagogue is mentioned there a lot, uh, Luke 7 1-10 to records how Jesus healed a slave of a Roman soldier who was posted locally and uh, that was probably uh, an event that took place in this first century uh, our fourth se- first century uh, synagogue under the, sorry, fourth century one there also uh, what's come to be known as Peter's house um, that's not absolutely certain it's plausible um, the uh, now uh, get the dates right here, there was a, a remains in Capernaum of a 5th century church, an octagonal 5th century c- church. And then in the late 60s archaeologists discovered inside that 5th century church the remains of a 4th century church underneath it. And then they discovered that that 4th century church had been built around what was a, originally a 1st century house from Capernaum. And in that house, one of the rooms of that house seems to have been converted at a very early stage into a sort of Christian shrine. The walls have been plastered and they found, scratched into the plasterwork of the walls of that first century house, various prayer, Christian prayers, um, uh, invoking the name of Jesus, sort of, Jesus, you know, heal me, and, and so on. Uh, And that uh, house had seemed to be, from an early time, used as a Christian meeting place. And we do have testimony from Constantine's mother, uh, Egeria, who went on a sort of first pilgrimage uh, around the Holy Land. Um, Although, of course, she has a bias because she's doing this in the wake of Constantine's conversion to Christianity to pull the empire together. And she's sort of, uh, this is a bit of, I will go on a tour around all of the holy sites and, and so on. But... She does record in her diaries in the 4th century that in Capernaum the house of the Prince of the Apostles has been made into a church. So this would have been the 4th century church at the time that they discovered in archaeology. She's reporting in her diaries visiting that 4th century church. It says the house of the Prince of the Apostles, Peter that would have been, has been made into a church with its original walls still standing. Uh, the 1st century house inside this 4th century church. It's where the Lord cured the paralytic, um, cured Peter's mother of fever, etc. So it seems that there would have been a very early tradition uh, there that this church was then marking this place from an early time. Um, So those match up. So it's a plausible identification, although you 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 haven't got Peter lived here (laughs) scratched into the wall or anything like that. Uh, this strange structure ab- uh, above it here, the Roman uh, Catholic Church has built a sort of uh, glass and concrete UFO-looking structure where you can walk up and look down through the floor into the archaeological dig site, that's what that is. But you can, you can probably just about make out here the, the walls of the octagonal building around another building inside. The it's like one of those Russian dolls, you know. I mentioned the Pool of Bethesda earlier. Here's the Pool of Bethesda described in John 5. Uh, John gives a very detailed description of it there. Uh, near the Sheep Gate, surrounded by five covered colonnades, and so on. And uh, exactly in the 19th century, they uh, dug up exactly such a structure where John said it should be, uh, undermining liberal claims that this was all just talking about the five books of the Pentateuch, and, and so on. Much more recently, um, you can still find it in, in various archaeology textbooks on, on, on online about the pool of Siloah. Uh, we're not doing Old Testament stuff, but you know, during the Old Testament time, Hezekiah famously redirected the springs from outside Jerusalem to inside. And you have Hezekiah's tunnel, uh, which you can uh, walk through today, uh, knee-high in water depending on the time of year and so on. Uh, That's a very interesting archaeological thing in itself and it comes out into Jerusalem and there's an early church built above it and people have said this, where the water comes in from Hezekiah's tunnel to Jerusalem, that must be the Pool of Siloam because it's been marked by this church from an early date and so on. Um, That seems now to have been undermined by a much more recent find closer to the temple of a a massive uh, ritual bathing pool which they now think is the Pool of Siloam. 2004 they were, they were doing digging up to replace some of the drainage system in Jerusalem and they stumbled across some steps and they started, un- you have to call the archaeologists in when you stumble across something like this, started uncovering the steps and this is basically the steps of one side of a four, four-sided pool and there's still water running uh, along the bottom that does come from Hezekiah's tunnel. Uh, the first-century ritual pool of Siloam mentioned in John nine. Um, here's a few other pictures of the the place, so you can see the water still running there. These steps go round the, the, the would have originally gone round all four sides, and this is some of the material that they used to date that find. Uh, dating of things in archaeology comes through a whole range of methods, from what what sort of stratum you've dug down to to the kind of pottery. That's typical of certain periods that you find there, uh, down to also very useful, of course, pottery, uh, finding coins from a particular period because coins tend to have dates stamped on them. Uh, and so, if you find uh, coins uh, with your find at a certain stratum, uh, you can pretty accurately uh, date something. Uh, you know, this, this, these, these coins must have been minted before it got covered over later on in history. Uh, anyone want to ask any uh, questions about uh, historical places in the New Testament and archaeology before we we move on? Peter I was just going to ask you about the timing so
1: whenever you talk there about the first the piece of the seal about Bethlehem mm. that's dated through those methods that you talked about the t- Style the scene, yeah, the,
0: the, uh, the style of writing changes yeah. over time. That's something that uh, paleo- paleographers look at. It'll be to do with uh, what, what sort of stratum, and what depth it was found at and the other finds <coughs> with it in that area and at that same depth. Uh, off- and that's often to do with um, characteristic pottery styles that change over time. Uh, with coins, particularly useful because of, of the dating, and then archaeologists do sometimes use things like carbon dating uh, and so on as well, but um, the best, of course, is when you have a number of different dating methods converging uh, on a particular date. Yeah, same for and all yeah, yeah. What about the pull of Bethesda there? Have you said a, a certain of skepticism. Is there anything you find about it?
1: Is there anything find about to Prove the location of
0: the Pool of Bethesda. Yes, they, they've this. That's the Pool of Bethesda there. Yeah. So wh- when when was the, when did that happen? That was dug up in the 19th century. So it was 19th. Century. Yeah, 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 um. yeah. Is or is that one's the much more? Pool
1: of Siloam. That's not the one that at the Bethesda Caves tunnel.
0: Yeah. So they they think right. that, that that this is the Pool of Siloam and not the one that's directly the yeah. very small one uh, at, uh, just at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel which did used to be labelled as that uh, but I think the thinking now is ah no this is much more <laughs> uh, likely to, to be the, uh, the Pool of Siloam um, it's fascinating things there, there's sort of uh, s- some of these steps that they have little sort of indents in them where you, ha- you would put the ritual sort of washing jars uh, to collect water, and then sort of you pour the water over yourself. You go down into the water, you collect the water, you pour the water over yourself, and it's all to do with the ritual purity washing thing as you sort of go to the temple uh, and so on. And it's a big enough facility that a lot of people could, could use it. Yeah. Grand. Okay, so let's uh, look at uh, historical people from the New Testament in archaeology. And let's take, uh, as an example, this passage from Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, because here Luke as the good historian he is, wanting to nail down, I'm talking about history, and here's the historical uh, period and, and sort of surrounding situation that I'm talking about, mentions a lot of names and titles of people. So he, uh, he puts his neck on the block of uh, factual Verification or falsification. Um, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, number one, when 2 Pontius Pilate was governor of Judah, Herod was tetrarch, that is a governor of a quarter of a Roman province, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria. And Traconiatus, and, and, and just to mention there that uh, Philip uh, is mentioned by Josephus in Jewish Antiquities. Um, for uh, Licinius, Tetrarch of Albany, uh, Ab- Abilene, uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. Uh, son of Zechariah in the desert, on the Baptist. Uh, so apart from literary references from other historians like Josephus, what about arch- you know more hard and fast archaeology as it were? Well, of course, there's loads associated with a lot of these figures. Uh, Tiberius Caesar, there's a bust of him. Here is a, a Tiberius din- Denarius coin. This would have been the coin that Jesus was pointing at when he said. Okay, is it legal to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, show me a coin. Whose image is on that coin? Tiberius Caesar. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, This is a denarius from 14 to uh, 37 AD, right from Jesus' lifetime. Uh, Pontius Pilate. This was a, a stone discovered in 1961 that had been uh, originally, it was sort of a stone that held a, the inscription of, of a plaque of, a, of a, a, a temple, a Tiberium, that Pontius Pilate had built and dedicated to the emperor. And then later on, people had come and reused that stone, and they uh, think it was in a, uh, an amphitheater, um, which they were uh, digging up, and they just f- came across this stone. And you can see it's a little bit damaged, but in Latin script on there, uh, you have the word Tiberium, that is one of these temples to Tiberius, Emperor Tiberius. Tiberius. Uh, Tius Pilatus, uh, and it's very plausible to fill that in with Pon at the beginning. Then you'd have Pontius Pilatus, and then you have on, on the stone the, uh, the letters uh, Ectus, which again, very plausibly, you could fill out with Prefectus, Ectus, so which would be this type, you know, uh, I dedicate this Tiberium... Uh, Pontius Pilatus prefectus, Or Herod the Great. Here's a bronze coin of Herod the Great. uh, It's got a a tripod ceremonial bowl on on one side uh, with the inscription Herod King. And the year the coin was struck, uh, year three of Herod's reign, which puts it at uh, 37 BC. Uh, in 1996, uh, Echad Netzer, Israeli Israeli archaeologist, discovered some broken pottery in Masada. Uh, and it bore the Latin inscription, Herod the Great King of the Jews, or King of Judea. Uh, that's the first archaeological find to mention the full biblical title of King Herod. And the Bible refers to him as King Herod, King of the Jews. It was part of a, a wine jug, an amphora, uh, dated to about 19 BC. Uh, Licinius. Now, this was a little bit problematical because scholars said, look, Luke clearly didn't know what he was talking about here because everybody knows that Licinius, he wasn't a tetrarch. Licinius was known to be ruler of Calcis half a century earlier then Luke mentions Licinius. So Luke clearly got it wrong. Uh, that was until an inscription was later dug up <laughs> uh, from the time of Tiberius, which names one uh, Licinius as Tetrarch in Albia near Damascus. There had been two people with the same name who'd had governmental positions in different places at different times. Uh, not all that surprising. <laughs> But again, you know, scholars went from, oh, we haven't found this. And, oh, we do know someone with, by the same name mentioned somewhere else. To, therefore, Luke got it wrong. And then the archaeology comes along and says, no, nope. Luke hit the nail on the head. Caiaphas, the, the high priest, the son of Annas, uh, the Jewish, uh, you know, the Jewish burial practices in this Second Temple period involved burying the body, waiting for the body to decompose, collecting the bones together, putting the bones into a, a bone box, an ossuary. And if you were very rich, you got a very fancy, nice-looking ossuary like this. And if you were poor, you had a very plain one. Well, here is uh, an ossuary. Uh, d- uh, Discovered uh, among several uh, others in a, in a tomb from the south of Jerusalem. And uh, on one side and back of this ossuary is inscribed Caiaphas's name because it says, Yosef bar Caiaphas, the son of Caiaphas. So it's the ossuary of Caiaphas's son. Very um, plausibly, given the uh, impressive nature of this ossuary, it would have to be someone rich and powerful. Uh, from the right historical period, right kind of place, and so on. Ha-ha! Have you heard about this? The Bulgarian bone box of John the Baptist. Now, again, you have to take this with a pinch of salt, because, uh, as is often said about the relics of saints, if you put all the uh, bone relics of saints together... Uh, you probably find that they have uh, four arms and two heads and <laughs> ten fingers on each hand and so on. Uh, but this one has a uh, bit more plausibility than most. This was uh, discovered in 2011. i uh, try and get the name right here. The archaeologist, head of the archaeologist uh, d- dig, uh, Professor Pop, Kos- Pop Konstantinov, headed the archaeological team that uncovered this reliquary. Uh, in which there were eight bone pieces attributed to John the Baptist, some of which were then found to be animal bones. Someone had beefed up the collection at some stage. Um, <laughs> but this reliquary—it was found embedded in the in the altar uh, in the ruins of a monastery on Sveti Ivan John's Island, a small uh, island off the, the black in the Black Sea off. Uh, Sozopol in Bulgaria and Professor Pop Kanstinov told the media uh, that he bases the support for the final authenticity on a Greek inscription found on another box uh, that was found with the reliquary uh, sort of buried into the material of the the altar in in this uh, uh, ruined monastery and the inscription on the the box with it uh, says uh, God save your servant Thomas to St John June 24th. June 24th is the religious feast of John the Baptist. Uh, The island's name and the monastery's dedication to St. John are also considered supporting uh, evidence. And then they sent the uh, bone fragments off for testing at Oxford University uh, for dating, for carbon dating. Oxford University archaeologists undertook carbon dating tests. Uh, They dated the right handed knuckle bone to the middle of the first century A.D. Okay, so that's, that's more interesting again. It's of the right historical period uh, when John is believed to have lived and you will also find online um, stories that they did some D- uh, DNA testing and they found it to be of Semitic origin uh, but I think uh, that's been called into question more recently uh, that that might have been a result of cross contamination of the find rather than uh, an accurate representation of what's there so that's a little bit uh, uh, more questionable and uh, I've also seen reports they've sort of MRI scanned uh, the, the, the human bones there uh, and said that whoever these bones came from seemed to, have seemed to have had a very bad diet possibly an entirely vegetarian diet uh, reflecting uh, the uh, lifestyle of John the Baptist that we have reported uh, in the in the Gospels, uh, but as I say, take that was a pinch of salt. But it's it's more impressive than some of those claims. Uh, just to to round off the people that are mentioned by Luke in ch- in uh, chapter three there. Now this is more impressive, although it, again it has a controversial history. And we recognise this is this is uh, obviously an, an ossuary of someone much poorer. <laughs> than uh, uh, Caiaphas and his son, it uh, bears uh, this in- inscription here, and it's been dated uh, to the middle of the 1st century, it's a chalk ossuary box, I say noticed in 2002, because it was discovered in uh, a private collector's collection, you know, a guy who just has an antiquities shop, uh, he was a, a Jewish uh, antiquities collector, uh, he seemed not to not to know what he had because he had it for a long time and didn't pay any special attention to it, and then one day someone was visiting the shop uh, who you know, knew how to read uh, the Aramaic, the the inscription, and uh, also knew about the Bible, and said, "Hey, hang on a minute, that's that's interesting because this says Jacob Bar Yosef Achud Yeshua." That is. James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Ah, that's quite an interesting combination of names on a first century chalk ossuary. Especially given that we know that James was martyred in AD 62, as reported by Josephus, uh, about 29 years after Jesus' crucifixion, which would date this ossuary uh, to something like 63, 64, something like that. Uh, Now, there was a whole uh, rigmarole about this, because basically when anything that uh, looks too good to be true turns up, people think, that's too good to be true, surely. And, you know, scepticism rises, and also the fact that it wasn't one of those finds that they're doing the archaeological dig, and recording it as they go, and hey, they dig this this box up, and you're able to date it from the other things around it, and... There it is, sort of mapped out and published and and peer-reviewed and everything. This was just someone noticing, hey, that's an interesting ossuary. And of course, there is possibility of forgery. And indeed, the uh, Israeli authorities uh, prosecuted the uh, antiquities dealer for forgery, took him to court over this. Uh, The interesting thing that then, turns out, is that the court case against him collapsed. The expert witnesses that were called by the state to to prosecute him, their testimony either fell apart or ended up proving that he was right. (laughs) And in 2014, uh, I will draw your attention to a peer-reviewed paper in the Open Journal of Geology that was published supporting the authenticity of this ossuary. And that question involves not only the dating, the antiquity of of the box... Then you've got the question of the antiquity of the inscription and some people argue, well maybe someone found an old box and carved a new inscription on it in order to make money. Uh, and then they sh- uh, that, that's not the case and that's to do with things like the, uh, the, the patina, the, the build-up of materials in the grooves of the lettering uh, of material that builds up over time and takes time to to build up and it was very difficult to fake and so on and then people said, well maybe maybe someone had a bone box that just had um, James, son of Joseph on it and then added the brother of Jesus bit to kind of sex it up, uh, as it were Uh, and this uh, Open Journal of Geology um, article does a a good job I think of arguing that that's not the case and that the the entire inscription is... uh, Ancient uh, as well as the box that it's on. Uh, it's called, um, if you want to look it up online, it's uh, The Authenticity of the James Ossery, published in the Open Journal of Geology. Uh, that's a bit fuzzy up there. Uh, in 2014, uh, edition four, and it's by um, Amnon Rosenfield et al. That's A M N O N Rosenfeld et and you can you can get it online for free uh, from uh, scientific research and uh, they look at uh, the patina they look at scratches on the box that have been formed over the years by some roofing tiles (laughs) believe it or not that that had fallen and scratched the box and they show that some of the scratches from the roof tiles go through the lettering and that the scratch has has patina in, and you know it would you couldn't post date the, the the writing has to predate when the scratch goes through it, uh, and also micro fossils, little fossils within the, the, the limestone of little sea creatures in there, uh, and the way that they're arranged in in terms of relating to the lettering and so on. So that's a very interesting find to go on, and now this find is beginning to appear uh, in the archaeology books. Herschel Shanks, who's just recently retired as the editor in chief of Biblical Archaeological Review magazine, I commented this box is more likely the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus of Nazareth, than not, in my opinion. It's likely that this inscription does mention the James and Joseph and Jesus of the New Testament. Part of that is the combination of names, part of that is it, 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 it wasn't the, the, the traditionally done thing to mention a family member other than, you know, son of, daughter of. You would only mention, you know, your brother if there was something particularly significant and sort of famous about the brother. Uh, So, um, pretty plausibly, we've got archaeological evidence from the 60s of the first century for the existence of James and Joseph and Jesus. Which is fascinating. Anything on, on these? Mm.
1: Isn't it fascinating that, that that's James of Zossary, he was the first bishop of Jerusalem?
0: Yes, and that's he right. He to the Jerusalem
1: Council in Acts 15. You'd yeah. Something a like the more ostentatious.
0: Well, <coughs> I, I don't know necessarily. It, it's just because he had a position of authority within the church uh, that the church is an ostracized minor, uh, would have been viewed on as a Jewish cult at the time. Um, he, you know, comes from a family of carpenters running a, a church with a bunch of fishermen. Um, you know, they were middle-class tradesmen. Uh, but they would not have, I think, been able to afford the kind of uh, engraving work that the chief priest and his family would have been able to. The Christ- Christians don't get into positions of sort of power and authority and in the, in the sense of having sort of status and wealth until the fourth century right. uh, with Constantine's reforms. Um, so I think it's, it's entirely within. Expectation that it would be a very simple uh, burial.
1: Okay. How much or otherwise is placed on radiometric
0: dating? Uh, I'm not sure how much weight is placed on radiometric dating. Uh, I, and I think the, the gold standard is to have multiple indications, really, you want. So some of that dating will be from the paleo- paleography of the of the inscription. Some of it comes purely from the fact that we know that they had this form of burial in the Second Temple period in Jerusalem. We've got lots of tombs and lots of ossuaries from, from that date. And then we know that Rome destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70 and turned it into a, into a Roman town, kicked all the Jews out in the, in the, after the Jewish revolt, and that this practice stopped after the Jewish war. Um, so it must be prior to the Jewish war um, which would put it at the latest within the early to mid-60s. Fift- the Jewish war was like 66 to 70, so that that dating is pretty secure on, on, on those grounds, as a sort of bookend at least. Okay, cultural, cultural things. Um. You could, you could look at all sorts of sort of little offhand details that the Gospel writers drop in about cultural practices and so on that you can validate from archaeology uh, and in a way that contrasts drastically with, say, the Gnostic Gospels from the second, third centuries and so on, which don't tend to mention people's names or place names or practices. They're, they're all concerned with putting across their sort of Gnostic mythology uh, using Jesus or disciples as a mouthpiece for those theological reflections, but they're not really tied into history. They're not, they're not Gospels in the sense of um, the sort of biographical, historical approach that the New Testament first century Gospels take, and you, you can tell that from the kind of references that they make. Uh, but I'm going to particularly focus on Christian beliefs, uh, that you can look at from, from archaeology and things relating to major sort of cultural practices like crucifying people. Uh, this is our only archaeological remains of a crucifixion uh, victim. His name is Yohanan. Here's his bone box with his name on it. Yohanan, discovered in 1968, uh, along with uh, about 35 other uh, burials. Here's uh, Yohanan ben Haggagol, Yohanan son of Haggagol. He had a seven-inch nail driven through both his feet. Um, this is not a fine, this is just a reconstruction showing what it would have been like. This is the, the heel bone with the, the nail through it and a closer-up uh, image of that. Um, and the interesting thing here is not only had he been crucified, but he had been buried and obviously then re- in a in an ossuary. And that's interesting because often sceptics will say, uh, look, the New Testament must be inaccurate when it talks, talks about Jesus, you know, the tomb and the empty tomb and so on. Because since Jesus was crucified as a blaspheming criminal, you know, blaspheming from the Jewish point of view, a criminal from the Roman point of view, uh, he wouldn't have been given a decent burial like this. He would have been just tossed into a sort of pauper's grave uh, to be eaten by wild dogs or something. Uh, and so the Gospels must be inaccurate on this count. Um, But here is one of the pieces of archaeological evidence that shows, no, uh, you could get yourself crucified and still being given uh, a a relatively decent burial. Although, since Jesus was was buried in a borrowed stranger's tomb and not a family tomb, and it was a fairly rushed affair in order to get it under the the Sabbath deadline, such that the, the women wanted to go back later to complete the purity rituals and so on, it wasn't that much of a honorable burial um so that's questionable in and of itself but here's you know archaeological proof that you could be crucified and given uh, a burial in a tomb talking of tombs this is again uh, one of those uh, russian doll scenarios where people have marked a spot and then uh, say, hey there's a nice little church there well ha, uh, huh, we can build a nicer church now let's build a big one over that oh now now we've got arches like this let's build a real big church around that one um this is uh, the traditional site of Jesus' uh, tomb in Jerusalem, and I think it's got the best claim to being the site of Jesus' burial. And it was recently uh, renovated. You can see you know, inside the church, one of the churches built around the original burial site, Cave. Uh, uh, Dan Bahat, the former city archivist of Jerusalem, um, talking here uh, when National Geographic, I think it was just in the last year or so, Uh, were involved in doing a a, um, a sprucing up uh, of the tomb, and they had an opportunity to go and look archaeologically at the site. Uh, And this city archaeologist of of Jerusalem, Dan Bahat, says, we we may not be absolutely certain that the site of the Holy Sepulchre Church is the site of Jesus' burial, but we certainly have no other site that can lay a claim nearly as weighty, and we really have no reason to reject the authenticity of the site, and uh, given that that's the case, of course, the interesting thing is, there, well, there is no body there. Um, <laughs> as you know, Peter says in, uh, in his Pentecost sermon, you know, the bodies of so-and-so and so-and-so are still there to this day, but the body of Je- Jesus is not there. Um, and here is, uh, underneath the, the, m- the cracked uh, marble slab that had been placed over... Uh, what had claimed to be the, the 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 shelf in the tomb that you would have laid the body on, uh, and they they took away the cracked marble slab to re- to renovate it, and did indeed find that underneath that marble slab uh, was a uh, a rock cut uh, shelf. Uh, F- uh, Frederick Hybert from National Geographic, archaeologist in residence, says it appears to be. Visible proof that the location of the tomb hasn't shifted through time, which is something scientists and historians had, had wondered about. So uh, that piece of rock there has a fairly plausible claim uh, to being where they laid Jesus's body in the tomb. And then, of course, later you have the story of the empty tomb, and uh, this is a an interesting find from said to have been found in. in Nazareth but it it was found quite a long time ago. It's a stone slab that's been dated to the AD 40s it was found in the 19th century Uh, and it contains a decree from the emperor of the time Emperor Claudius who um, was reigning from 41 to 54 AD and basically this decree uh, is upping the sentence for grave robbery and making it into a capital offence which it hadn't been previously. And it's been speculated that are plausible explanations for why would there be a big decree set up in Nazareth upping the sentence for grave robbery to a capital offence. Well, maybe Claudius had heard about the Christian doctrine of the resurrection, claims about the resurrection and Jesus' empty tomb, and had thought, oh well, you know, probably they just nicked the body uh, and then claimed that he had rose from the dead, and so on conspiracy theory. Uh, we want to make sure Jewish messianic uh, claims you know no one else uh, has the same idea in order to try and give legitimacy to their anti Roman messianic movement. Uh, we better up the the punishment for for grave robbery, maybe. <laughs> Dan Van- Brown and the Divinity Code. This is, this is a, a rather extreme take on this this view that the the idea of Jesus' divinity is a late development, but it's, it's one that is influential because it's uh, such a best-selling novel and one that it is easy to undermine simply by pointing at archaeology, which is nice. So a quote from the book here, Conversation between two of the main characters. Uh, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a, a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Not the Son of God. Right, Professor Teabing said. Uh, Jesus' establishment of the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, which is a sort of, um, not even a half-truth, <laughs> about the Council of Nicaea, which did indeed include a vote about Jesus' divinity, But the vote was on how to specifically conceive of Jesus' divinity, not about whether or not to conceive of Jesus as divine. (laughs) Uh, That wasn't in question and wasn't voted upon uh, at the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea, a church council from which you get the Nicene Creed and so on, happened in 325 AD. So, if you've got people who have the idea that, okay, originally Jesus was just this Jewish rabbinic teacher, this Jewish messianic movement, and then as the church spreads into the Gentile pagan world of pagan belief in gods and demigods and and Zeus having sex with so-and-so as a swan or a golden shower of coins to produce the demigod so-and-so, Uh, then the idea that Jesus was the divine son of God kind of crept into this Jewish Messianic movement uh, until eventually uh, Christians were thinking of Jesus as divine. That's the kind of picture that you'll get. Uh, Well, certainly that must have happened a lot earlier than 325 AD, as Dan Brown claims, and you can show it from the archaeology. So this is the 3rd century church at Dura-Europos in modern-day Syria. This is a reconstruction of the church and the particularly interesting bit we'll look at is down here the baptistry there's a a baptistry and in the baptistry there are uh, wall paintings fantastic wall paintings uh, from the third century such as this one and i want want to hazard what is depicted think of a biblical story that might be depicted here and the wall painting slightly fuzzy but you can see there's a a man here in a toga uh, with an arm outstretched over a man lying on a pretty substantial bed. And right next to the picture of the man lying on his pretty substantial bed is a man carrying his pretty substantial bed. Uh, I think they had updated this story in terms of their own cultural background, as uh, Christian artists are want to do. Uh, But this is a a picture of Jesus healing the paralysed man. Right. What is the particularly significant thing about the biblical story of Jesus healing the paralyzed man? So it's? Forgiving sins. Forgiving, right. So it's a biblical story, the main point of which is Jesus claiming the authority to forgive sins, and the Jews saying, you know, basically, who do you think you are? Only, only God can do that. Here's uh, the story from uh, Mark two three to twelve. So it would seem that by painting a picture of Jesus healing, you know, get up and which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or pick up your mat and walk your bedroll, probably Uh, much easier to carry than this sort of four poster affair. Uh, (laughs) I've got this iron bedstead on my back. Um, It's quite funny, really. Uh, but the, the, the paint by painting that here in the third century it would seem that Christians are uh, indicating a belief in the divinity of Jesus because that's the central point of the, the story that we know being is being depicted there likewise here is a, a picture again you need to squint a little but I've, I, I've emailed around you've, you've got the PDFs of the entire um, uh, PowerPoint and a handout as well that should be available to you you can uh squint at under a magnifying glass at your leisure uh, here we have um uh, a boat, various people looking out from the boat, and on the water here here we have one one person whose feet are standing on the water, and another person who seems to be uh basically up to their knees <laughs> in the water uh reaching out a hand towards this other figure who's standing on the water, who's reaching out their hand to them. Um, Now, given the context, (laughs) this is a baptistry in a church, we all immediately know that this is a depiction of... Yeah, Jesus walking on the water and saying to Peter, well, you you, you come, and and Peter doing that wily coyote thing of running off the cliff after (laughs) Roadrunner... looking down and realising what he's doing, (laughs) and then plummeting uh, to earth. Um, It's a little bit like that, isn't it? He walks on the water until he starts thinking, good grief, I shouldn't be doing this. He takes his faith, takes his trust off Jesus and starts thinking about himself, and then starts thinking. Um, But given the Old Testament, verse uh, Job 9, 8, For example, which says, uh, talking about God, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. You could take it that the point of Jesus' miracle of walking on the water wasn't just to say, hey guys, I'm better than Paul Daniel's going to (laughs) be. But that he was enacting uh, a picture, a pictorial claim to divinity. You know, that it wasn't just a look how impressive I, I can be there was actually a point to the miracle even the Old Testament context uh, so maybe again uh, we have a, 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 a picture um, which shows that people in the 3rd century uh, thought of Jesus in that divine context uh, none of this this, this, for example, this, isn't, this is not evidence that the miracle of Jesus walking on the water happened. <laughs> it's too, too late for that. This is you know, in the third century. But if, what I think you definitely can say is that it's evidence that some people either believed that he did walk on the water, or at least believed the point of the story about him walking on the water, just as they believed the point of the story about him healing the paralytic. And that is that they believed that Jesus was divine. And then directly over the baptistry pool, you have this uh, picture, again, of various, there's some sheep here. And here's a figure carrying a sheep uh, on his shoulders. And of course, the repeated Old Testament use of the imagery of, of the shepherd uh, and, the, and the, his flock for God and Israel. Uh, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Uh, says uh, Jesus in John the Lord is my shepherd says the psalmist in Psalm 23 Uh, so again very plausibly the point of this picture given the context is that these people in the 3rd century wanted to attribute to Jesus being the shepherd of the flock putting Jesus in the same position that the Old Testament gives to God This uh, Christian prayer hall, discovered whilst trying to extend a prison in Megiddo, discovered in 2005, and dated by various means, pottery and so on, uh, to around 230 AD, or at least the the sort of uh, early to mid 3rd century. Here we see a reconstruction of the building, and what they uncovered was this uh, mosaic, and the foundation stone of the communion table uh, in the middle of the, the church or prayer hall. And I have a, again a, a four or five minute video because this is such a fascinating find in various ways, uh, where we're given a little tour of this discovery uh, by one of the archaeologists.
1: The excavations led to another-
0: little hard to make out but he first of all pointed out an inscription about a Roman officer who gave money for the mosaic and then he pointed out the the fish symbols uh, in one part of the mosaic and pointed out the fish was an early Christian symbol before the cross became the major Christian symbol at the time of Constantine so saying that that helps us date this to pre-Constantine because of the fish being used rather than the cross, and the fish was used because the Greek word for fish, ichthus, uh, was an acrostic where you take the, the, each letter of a word, and it stands for the first letter of a, a word itself. And in Greek, ichthus stood for Jesus Christos, Theo Yiosote, that is Jesus Christ, God's Son, Saviour. Uh, so there. Uh, This fish symbol talking about Jesus as God's son and savior. And then over this side, the east and west inscriptions. Again, this was an inscription about various women in the community who'd donated money or whatever. But this is the particularly interesting one in our context uh, about uh, uh, the the God loving Akeptus. You have to. uh, Ikeptus, who loves God has given this table in, as a memorial and in Greek they, they don't underline things, they overline things, so this is overlined as particularly important uh, the, the God Jesus Christ so 3rd um, century uh, been dated to early 3rd third, third century indeed an uh, inscription there in black and, black and white in tiles, as it were, here were people who believed that Jesus was not just Son of God, Saviour, but calling him God, Jesus Christ. There's a close-up of the inscription. Uh, the Alex Graffiti, or Graffito in Latin, such a different language, uh, found at Palatine Hill in Rome. I've seen a range of dates for this, but Richard Bockham, a respected New Testament uh, scholar, uh, says this is dated to about 200 AD. And we have here uh, a naked figure on a cross with a donkey's head. We know from other sources that... that, um, People having a jibe at Christianity often portrayed Jesus with a donkey's head or a figure with a donkey head. Uh, another man looking up at the figure on the cross with his arm outstretched and then we have some writing scratched into the, the plaster work here that says Alex Aminos worships his God or perhaps Alex Aminos, worship your God. Uh, there's probably one Roman soldier taking the mickey out of a fellow Roman soldier uh, who is such an idiot that he worships Someone who was crucified. I mean, this guy made such an ass of himself that he got himself crucified. And which is funnier? That this guy got, you know, was such an ass that he got crucified, or that Alex Aminos worships him? <laughs> what an idiot! Yeah? Now, who does that put us in mind of? What, the, think of the list of candidates pre about 200 AD of people who were crucified who might have been worshipped. Uh, it's a pretty short list. Um, so this would seem to indicate uh, a belief uh, in Jesus' uh, divinity. You worship uh, this crucified uh, figure from 200 uh, AD. And indeed, uh, this, this is one of the things that shows that th- the idea of of giving high status of any kind to someone who was crucified is such a culturally ridiculous idea, Um, why on earth would anyone adopt that belief? Uh, They'd have to have some pretty strong motivation of some kind in order to do it uh, which is an interesting line of argument to follow. So here's a little diagram here. Here we have uh, the G- crucifixion of Jesus, I'd put it at 33 AD. Uh, here's 100 AD, 200 AD, 300 AD, Council of Nicaea at 325 AD. So here's the, just the archaeological finds clustering here between sort of 200 and the mid uh, uh here, um, I should uh, spread this a little r- r- finer graph, but uh, you can see you're tracking back here. The Dury Rupos Church, the Megido Church, is probably a little earlier than that. The, the Palatine Hill graffiti is quite a lot earlier than those. Just from those archaeological finds, uh, it you know blows out of the water uh, the Dan Brown hypothesis. Um, There are those who will have a a, a slightly more nuanced position in this and might put the the invention of the idea that Jesus was divine more about here, uh, which has the benefit of not being contradicted by the archaeological evidence, um, but is still contradicted by all the literary (laughs) evidence, uh, of course. And Indeed, at this year's European Leadership Forum in Poland, I'm giving a talk on, on early high Christology from archaeology and then from the book of the Epistle of James, uh, which I argue uh, probably is by James, the brother of Jesus, but whether it is or not, it's, it's a Jewish uh, Christian letter uh, dating from before the Jewish war, plausibly even as early as about 45 AD. There's a range of dates you can give. You could push it back as early as 45. It could be as late as, say, 60 something. Uh, But that the Book of James evinces a very high Christology because James not only talks about Jesus as Lord, but particularly he talks about um, Christians being abused by by non-Christians, and he says, um, you know, uh, those who blaspheme the name that owns you. Now blaspheme in context would indicate you know, blasphemy in the full sense although, yeah, the Greek word can, can just mean saying nasty things about someone, not necessarily blaspheming in the full sense of the term, but the context is important, but also James' use of that phrase, the name that owns you, because in the Old Testament, it is uh, Israel, the people of God, who are owned by the name of God. And the name of God Owns you is an Old Testament phrase, and here James is applying that to the abuse that Christians are getting. And we know from uh, it's around that time, uh, in the the uh, sort of mid 40s, that non that pagans first started using the term of abuse Christian, Messiah slave. <laughs> you stupid Messiah slaves. Didn't, don't you know he got himself crucified? What idiots you are, you know. Um, so in that context, it, we would seen, you know, people are abusing followers of the way, as they thought of themselves, then as Christians. And James is saying, you know, those who are blaspheming the name of him that owns you. Um, possibly as early as 45, but that takes us into into literary stuff. But I thought I'd, I'd drop that in there at the end, anyway, because there are those who have a, a more nuanced sort of late development of the, the idea of Jesus' divinity. And, um, I mean, the whole New Testament blows that out of the water, but uh, James is a particularly interesting because you can show that that's very early and it's within a Jewish context. That's before Christianity has spread to the, the Gentile pagan world. So this idea that that, that was the sort of influence of pagan beliefs is really implausible uh, in that historical Jewish messianic context Uh, so i I open again uh, to you for any questions Um, that's the end of my prepared remarks for this session i thought i would uh, end at about half past i did Um, so we do have time for some questions and then probably time to uh, break up early for lunch
1: i thought that the garden tomb
0: on the, sort of, sort of mm. uh, yeah, I, I think the answer to that is no. <laughs> um, it, the garden tomb gives you a, a much better impression of what uh, a Jewish tomb would have looked like <laughs> at the time of Jesus um, than the Church of the Holy Sepulchre does where you've got... Yeah... <laughs> you know sort of um, kitsch is uh, built upon churches and uh, this kludge of different historical uh, architectural kinds and so on and all of the political wrangling about you know which wing of the church is going to be in charge of it on which day and so on and sometimes the priests come to blows with each other and it's a disgrace but it does have the strongest historical claim to be in the right place from the right period as described uh, within the gospels whereas Um, Gordon's um, uh, research as an an amateur colonialist going out there and trying to look for the the site of the the tomb doesn't really hold much water, I think I think the archaeologists are generally agreed that if it's anywhere, it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre Uh, unfortunate as that is for the aesthetics of the thing
1: (laughs) Nevertheless, there are indications, and it does follow the biblical story that it's outside the city walls, it's at the place of the skull, it's at a busy crossroads, which would have been a, a yeah. place where executions would have taken place. There is evidence that the uh, wine press that was discovered there was dated to the time of Jesus, so the wine press indicates that it was a garden, the mm. garden was nearby, uh, and there was the tomb
0: yeah well the church of the holy sepulchre was outside the jerusalem walls as well the jerusalem walls have moved over time during the first century it would have been outside uh, the city walls uh, as as described in the gospels as well so um i'll just have to uh, re- refer you to the, the the textbooks for for further information but my reading of the of the of the debate is that the the church of the holy sepulchre has the strongest historical claim
1: yeah. Well, we say at the Garden yeah. Tomb that uh, it actually doesn't it's not important mm. in one sense if it took place at Garden Tomb or it took place at Suffolk, the important
0: thing is that it Well, absolutely, uh, absolutely but in, in terms of giving people historical evidence for things um, one has to go on what the majority sort of historical evidence points to and um, you know, as non-experts as I am, I'm not an expert in archaeology, this is more of a hobby of mine than my professional training as you know, uh, I can only be really guided by my assessment of the material that I've read and I have read in, in, into the debate um, so I would, I would want to present the information I, I'm sure I would probably say to people there are a couple of sites that people think may have been the site and I think this one has the strongest claims for the the following reasons say something like that Um, But as I say I I think that the the garden tomb you know gives you a much better impression of what it Jesus' tomb would have been like Um, Jesus' tomb didn't have a number of churches built around it in the first century Um, (laughs) but uh, yeah